morning to everybody. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we're back in Thessalonians today. Uh, we'll be talking about the return of Jesus again. And specifically this morning, we're going to talk about how we are to be alert, vigilant, and sober as we wait for him and what that means. Uh, the big question that people have about the coming of the Lord is, of course, when? When will it happen? Uh, and that's a question we are not given an answer to. Uh, we are given some signs that will immediately precede his coming, but the day and the hour is not vital for us to know because we are always ready. We live ready, or we're supposed to be. Uh, we are a people who keep our lamps trimmed and burning. We stay close to Jesus as a way of life. Uh, John said, little children, abide in him or remain in him. Stay close to him so that when he appears, we may not shrink from him in shame at his coming. 1 John 2, 28. The Lord Jesus will come like a thief in the night, shocking and terrifying the unbelieving world. Uh, but he does not come as a, an unexpected surprise uh, for believers. And that's not because we've figured out all the signs or because we've got our prophecy charts just right, but because of how we live. We will not be surprised like a thief of the night because of how we live. We live in the light. We do not live or we do not walk in the darkness. Verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. We are not living in ignorance and blindness and moral darkness. Verse 5, for you are children of light. You are all children of light, children of the day. Uh, we, we are children of light. We have the light. We know the light of the world. We know what's going on. Uh, we know how the story ends. We've been illumined or enlightened by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we believe in Jesus. We love him. And we've heard, him, we've heard his promise, I will come again. Uh, so we're, we're wide awake. Uh, we're wide awake and watching. And our, the cry of our heart is, come, Lord Jesus. So that day will not come upon us like a thief. And because we are children of the day, we are urged to not live like we are asleep or drunk. Uh, we are to be spiritually alert, uh, vibrant, alive, vigilant, watching and ready for our precious Savior whom we love to come back and get us. And Paul goes on to say that we are to put our armor. We are to put on our spiritual armor, uh, the shield of faith and love, the helmet of hope. All right, that's just kind of a quick summary, but I, I want you to get the point, the, 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 the focus, what Paul is driving at for us here in this passage. So let's go back and get into the details of all of that. Verse 1, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Which begs the question, why do they have no need for anything to be written to, to, you, to them? 
Well, they had no need for Paul to write to them because Paul had already taught them about the coming of the Lord. And he taught them that right after they were saved. And every Christian and every new believer should be taught that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. And to look for that and to be ready for that. In 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter, or I'm sorry, in the next book of Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 5, Paul said, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Way back when Paul first came to them, when he first shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, when they first turned from idols to, to believe and put their faith in Christ, Paul was already telling them these things about the coming of the Lord. Uh, they, were, they were very young Christians, and yet Paul described them this way, or he commended them by saying, you guys, you turn from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his Son from heaven. That statement, that sentence summed up their purpose in life. And that is our present mission too. That, that should be a summation of, how, of our purpose for living. It should be a statement of our mission in life to serve God and to eagerly look for His Son to come from heaven. So, let's make, a, let's make an adjustment of our hearts, our purpose for living, our mission to that. To turn from idols, to serve the living God, and to wait for His Son from heaven. And Paul goes on, You have no need for anything to be written to you about days and seasons, or about the time or timing of Jesus' return, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Uh, he made them fully aware that the day of the Lord or the specific time or season, the day or general season of the day of the Lord is not revealed to us. And this is very much the same thing that Jesus said when his disciples asked him, Lord, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus replied, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So, Paul had told them, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say anything more to you about times and seasons. You've already been taught that the coming of the Lord is going to be unexpected like a thief in the night. Now, uh, before we go further, I think we need to address this, this phrase that Paul uses, the day of the Lord. It's a very common phrase used uh, throughout the Old and New Testament. It's used a lot in the Bible. And uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, it refers to that future day when God will set things right with his creation. It's a day of destruction for sinners and a day of salvation for God's people. And there's a lot more that we could say about that, and I would love to, but we don't have time this morning. But what Paul means by the phrase, the day of the Lord, is clearly defined for us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And in that letter, Paul, Paul wrote, concerning 
the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you not to be alarmed by any spirit or message alleging that the day of the Lord has come. He, he equates the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him in our, in our resurrected bodies. He equates that event with the day of the Lord. And the big story of the day of the Lord for believers is uh, resurrection and uh, our gathering to Jesus or our going to be with our Lord. Now, there are many other things that will happen on the day of the Lord uh, that are spoken of all throughout the scriptures, including judgment uh, and the destruction uh, which Paul refers to here, and we are going to get to that too in a little bit. Uh, but first, I want to focus just a little bit more on this phrase that Paul uses to describe the day of the Lord. He said, that day, the day of the Lord, will be like a thief coming in the night. It'll be like being robbed in the middle of the night. And Paul uses this phrase to communicate, I think, two things. One we've already talked about, but I'm going to say it again. Uh, first, it tells us that we don't know when it will happen. Believers don't know. Uh, the unbelieving world certainly doesn't know. No one knows when they will be robbed. No one plans for that. It's not on your calendar. Uh, I've never been robbed in my home in the middle of the night, but my dad, uh, when I was younger, uh, had a small grocery store in Martinsdale, Iowa, and I very well remember one night a thief broke in, uh, drilled open uh, this massive uh, safe that was in, this, in the back room of the store and s stole all the cash uh, from what was called Lowell's Grocery. Uh, and that thief didn't tell us when he, when he was coming. It was, a, it was a surprise. It was unexpected. It was unknown. Well, this unknown and unexpected timing of the Lord's return is emphasized uh, in most of the parables that Jesus taught us about his coming. And I'm quite sure that Paul taught the Thessalonians some or maybe all of these same parables. Uh, Jesus said, in one of the parables, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So this phrase, thief in the night, originated from Jesus and what Jesus taught about his coming. Now, just to drive home this parable or this, story, this point further, I want to I point quickly to another parable. Uh, the one about the, what is called the ten virgins. In that parable about the ten virgins, or we would probably call them ten bridesmaids, uh, they were waiting uh, for, the, for the groom so the wedding feast could begin. begin. And Five of them, as they were waiting, five of them brought enough oil to keep their lamps burning. Five of them brought lamps, but not enough ex oil, or not, no extra oil. And the coming of the groom was delayed, and their lamps burned out. So those five 
left and went to get more oil. But by the time they came back, the groom had come, the wedding feast had already begun, the door was shut, and they were excluded from the celebration. Jesus said this about that parable. He said, so, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And he added at the end of the parable, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So, Jesus was saying in those parables that he requires readiness and vigilance and faithfulness to our duties right up to the moment of his return because we don't know when it will be. And that's Paul's message to us here too. Secondly, the idea of a thief coming in the middle of the night also communicates something unwanted or shocking and terrifying. And Paul uses this phrase to communicate what coming like a thief in the night will be like for unbelievers or for those in darkness. And then he switches to another word picture and says, verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. All right, as I said earlier, the the impact uh, of, the re- of the coming of the Lord, the immediate impact of the coming of the Lord, the primary immediate impact of the coming of the Lord for us who believers is what? It's resurrection. It's life. It's glory. It's being united with Jesus. Uh, for, uh, for the unbelieving world, it's, it, will be, it will bring about sudden destruction. And Paul says sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. The unbelieving world is not expecting Jesus to return. They uh, have no fear of God. They scoff at the idea of God's wrath or judgment. And yet, while they think they have nothing to worry about, especially from Jesus, then sudden destruction then the Lord Jesus Christ will come with a shout from heaven and sudden destruction will come upon them. I'm afraid he may have gone apostate, but Bob Dylan wrote a powerful song about this. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet Jesus? Are you where you ought to be? Will he know you when he sees you or will he say, depart from me? Are you ready when destruction comes swiftly and there's no time to say, fare thee well? Have you decided whether you want to be in heaven or in hell? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment? Are you ready for that terrible swift sword? Are you ready for Armageddon? Are you ready for the day of the Lord? Well, Paul said many won't be. Uh, Destruction will come upon them like labor pains. And his point uh, in, in using, using this word picture of, or the experience of labor pains, his point is that labor pains can't be escaped. Birth pains come uh, when they come, whether you want them or not. You can't turn them off. And destruction will come like that. It will come with a, with a shocking 
uh, suddenness for the unbelieving world. So there's a day coming when the opportunity of salvation will be over. And in the, in the most sober way, the most serious way, if there is one, anybody, even one uh, or two here this morning uh, who have not responded to the invitation of Jesus uh, to come to him, I beg you to, uh, to do that this morning. He invites you to come. Uh, drink of the living water uh, freely, without cost. Come to him. Turn to him for salvation. Then in verse 4, Paul turns uh, his attention back to, to us. But you are not in darkness, brothers. He's talking to Christians here now. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Darkness uh, means spiritual ignorance and blindness that leads to uh, evil, careless, foolish living. Uh, Paul said that Believers in Jesus have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And Paul says here, you are not in darkness, brothers. Verse 5, for you are all children of light, children of the day. Uh, Again, communicating that the light of God has shone into our hearts and into our minds. Uh, we've, we've been enlightened by the truth. We've been illuminated by the message of Jesus Christ so that his coming will not be a, a bad surprise for us, but a glorious one, uh, something that we have longed for and waited for like these Thessalonian believers. And then in verse 6, Paul gives us a a strong word, an urgent word of of, of application of, okay, what do we do with this? He says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. Let us not sleep. What a command. Uh, Please hear that. Let us not sleep. Sleep. The Christian life looks like being awake. Uh, no one should be able to, des- to describe you or me as being asleep spiritually. Uh, we, we are appealed uh, to, uh, we are, it's urged upon us to, to be awake, to be alert. Uh, let us not sleep as others do, Paul said. Let us not sleep as others do. Most People are spiritually asleep. They don't know what's going on with God's agenda and purpose and plan for the world. They're, they're complacent, unconcerned about spiritual things. Uh, they have no uh, energy or drive to please the Lord. And Paul says, do not be like that. Do not be like them. But in contrast to that, be wide awake alert, actively serving Jesus and ready for him to come. And then in verse 7, he says, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Uh, Paul adds uh, the state of drunkenness to help us understand how we are not 
to live. We're not to live like a, uh, like a, a person who's asleep. We're not to li- live like a person who, who, is, who, get, who gets drunk. A person who is drunk, literally drunk, on, like on alcohol I'm talking about, a person who's literally drunk is, uh, is foolish and irresponsible. They, they can't walk straight. They can't carry out responsibilities. Uh, you can't count on them. And so Paul, Paul says in verse 8, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Not drunk, but sober. And that, that doesn't mean we never laugh or smile, but it means clear-minded, uh, alert, ready for action. Uh, it's an attitude, uh, a frame of mind. Uh, there, there's a, a website, I think it's called gotquestions.org, uh, that I happen to see on it. It's a, it's a, it's a good, good source. Anyway, it said, sober means eliminating foolishness, frivolity, and mind-numbing silliness from our lives and focusing on what is real and eternal. I think that's a pretty good de- definition of being sober. We are serious-minded about serving Jesus. We're happy. We're full of joy. Overflowing with gratitude, we enjoy life, we, we, we worship and love God, but we, we are serious about serving, serving Jesus. We, we take this whole thing with a sober mindset. We're to be responsible uh, and, and again, clear, clear-minded. I think that's part of what being sober means. We we, we know what's going on. We generally understand what's going on with the world. We know what's wrong with mankind. We know what's wrong with creation. Uh, we know that all of creation is groaning under the misery and curse of sin, and we eagerly hope and wait for that final redemption. We, just, we talked about last Sunday in Romans 8. Uh, we know the Lord Jesus Christ will come again and bring salvation out of this present corruption, and we're living like we believe that. We're sober, serious-minded, watching, and waiting. Verse 8, be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Or I I think the meaning of this verse, if, if I could make just one slight adjustment to it, or maybe help us understand it, I think it's saying, let us be sober by putting on faith and love and hope. That's to be part of this sober uh, life that we are to live. So Paul switches here. Now, he's, he's, talked about, he's, he's used such imagery here in this chapter. I hope you pick up on it, but I mean, it's kind of amazing. He's talked about... Uh, thieves coming in the night he's talked about labor pains he's talking about being asleep he's talking about drunkenness he's talking about being sober and now he switches over to military terms uh, in order to help communicate how we are to live because we are in a fight we're in a battle uh, that battle will be over someday uh, but for now you'd better fight the good fight uh, Christianity is a street fight. That's not all it is, but that is a part of it. Uh, there's a lot of teaching out there that makes the Christian life all about 
success and ease and personal fulfillment. And that ultimately leaves people disillusioned when they walk through the valley of deep darkness. The Christian life is not a cakewalk, and we need to know it. It's a war. And so get your breastplate and your helmet on and get ready for the battle. Now, one thing uh, that was earlier in this book that I think reveals how real this spiritual battle is is something that Paul said, which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read for you. Uh, the, but the fight, our fight, is so real and deadly that Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica, he said, for fear that Satan had tempted them through suffering and that his work among them would have been useless or vain or a waste. He was afraid they'd been wiped out by, by the work of Satan. And that can happen if you've if you have done well uh, for a few months or maybe for many years, never become overconfident. Let him who takes, thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. You know, I've seen people who do well for just short spurts of time and they, they just they get overconfident. And then pretty soon they don't feel like they need to be around fellowship that much and they become more careless how they walk and pretty soon they've crashed and burned again and they just never seem to learn, learn that lesson. Do not become overconfident. Uh, walk carefully. Be sober and vigilant. Clear to the end with your shield of faith in place and your breastplate of love on and your helmet of hope. And we're going to talk about each of those just a bit. Again, it's a fight, so we're commanded to put on a piece of armor, a breastplate, uh, a shield of faith and love. Uh, faith is a protection. Uh, faith protects you. Uh, protects you in the, in the, the real uh, spiritual warfare that we endure I mean, just let your faith down for a moment and you'll see how badly beaten up you can get. Paul said in Ephesians, take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming missiles of the evil one. Satan is not playing around. He is shooting flaming missiles, firing flaming missiles at us. Uh, we should not be playing around. We should be diligent to do the things that build up our faith. Uh, Paul said, stand firm in the faith. In 1 Corinthians 6, 13, stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Or be men of courage. Be strong. And he's, he's saying that's what, that's what faith looks like. And put on the breastplate of love. Love is a shield. Uh, love is a shield for you. And for the church, uh, just stop walking in love for a little bit and see how much damage it causes the church and your relationships and your own soul. 
sow a sharp word or an outburst of anger and see what a foothold is given to the devil. 1 Peter 4.8, Peter said, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Our love for one another, not, our love for one another defeats uh, the work of sin and Satan. Uh, John Gill, commentator, said, love, love to the saints knits us together, preserves our unity and peace, and fortifies us against our common enemy. Love is a part of the armor. And for a helmet, put on the hope of salvation. Uh, we need hope for the fight. Uh, we need hope for the, for the journey. For the, we need hope to, put, to fight the good fight. Hope is joy and optimism that comes from what we know about our future. And Paul defines our hope here in this, in this passage. Uh, I'm amazed at the, the correlation here between uh, 1 Thessalonians and what we were going through in Romans 8. Uh, Paul, I mean, Paul defined hope in Romans 8 there, but, he, but he, he also defines it right here in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. That's our hope. Uh, we're bound for glory. We're bound for safety, not wrath. And when our Lord Jesus Christ comes for us, he comes for us as our Savior, not as an avenging judge. He will come for some that way, but when he comes for us, he comes with salvation for you. But our, but our hope is, is much more than merely safety from wrath and ruin, although that is very important. Our hope is that we might live together with him. Verse 10, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live together with him. Uh, we will be with him. Heaven will be being with Jesus. We will reign with him. We will worship him. We will enjoy him. We will sing songs to him and around him like we sang this morning, worthy is the Lamb, and holy, holy, holy is the Lamb of God. And when he uses that phrase, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. He's not talking about being awake or asleep spiritually like he was just a few verses earlier. Okay, now he's using awake or asleep, meaning whether we are asleep as in already dead, or whether we are awake, meaning that we are physically alive when Jesus comes back. And so he says, whether we are uh, awake or asleep, we might live with him. And that goes back to our message a couple of weeks ago from, from chapter 4. But the point here is that our ultimate hope is Jesus is coming for us. He's coming back for us. He's coming with salvation. We're destined for glory and safety, uh, not wrath. And the end result of that is that we will live together with him. We will live with Jesus. He died so that we might live 
with him. In resurrected bodies, in the new heavens, the new earth, uh, forever and ever. But to be with him, to be with Jesus, is the answer to everything. Uh, Jesus is the bread of life. He is living water. He's the one who satisfies our hungers and our thirsts. In his presence is fullness of joy. Uh, he is heaven. Jesus is heaven. To be with him will be the ultimate joy of heaven. And again, I'm going to pull from some stuff back from Romans 8 that Josh has just taught us and has been so encouraging. This future, this hope that we have, this future glory, this is why Paul said, I do not consider the sufferings of this present time worthy of being compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Our pain and disappointment, our problems, uh, feel so big to us right now. But Paul said our future glory is so massive, uh, so awesome. Uh, it's so glorious that it can't even be compared with our present suffering. And and, and that isn't to make light of anybody's pain and suffering because it, be, it can be pretty severe, pain and suffering in this present life. It's meant to show us the surpassing greatness of the glory that is ahead of us and to help us get a picture of that. That pain that you feel that's, that's, that's really, really, really hard, it seems so big, but the glory ahead is so glorious that our present suffering can't be compared to it. And then we talked about this Wednesday night. Paul also described the, the present creation as being in bondage. And, and, you know, and, and that's, uh, that's why the Thessalonians, were, they're waiting for God's Son from heaven. They know something isn't quite right about things yet. We groan like we talked about in Romans 8. Uh, we groan, we do. Uh, present creation is being in bondage, but our future is what? Our future is the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And I don't know what all that will be, but it sounds pretty good to me. We don't know all that life with the Lord Jesus will be, but it, it will be like total freedom as God's children. And uh, that phrase... Uh, again, from last Sunday, made me think about uh, my little grandson, Grayson, uh, running free around our yard, picking flowers, skipping and jumping, just so happy and free. And life with the Lord will be like the glorious freedom of the children of God. Freedom from corruption, freedom from pain and the tears of this present life. And we're, we're just going to feel totally free in God's presence as, as his children. And we will be. We will be happy and pro probably, uh, probably jumping and skipping around too with delight in the presence of the Lord forever. So we are people who live uh, by a promise. We are people of promise. Our, our whole life, our, our hope 
the energy that drives us, the motive for living, living a sober life, uh, the, all of the motive is based on a promise. We hope in things we do not yet see. Our hope is the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, the completion of our salvation, the redemption or the resurrection of our bodies, and then being with Jesus forever and ever. And if you're not willing to live under the influence and expectation of things that you cannot see yet, uh, your Christian life won't be very exciting. But if you can let your heart sink into these truths, if you can let them touch your emotions, if you can let them capture your purpose for living and drive your, your personal mission in life, then the Christian life will be very exciting. Uh, and you will be a person of hope. If you put your hope in the glorious future, your heart and life will become saturated with this uh, unshakable optimism for the glorious future that the Lord has promised to us. And then Paul wraps up in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is a command to all of us uh, to take to heart. Uh, Paul did not write the book of 1 Thessalonians to uh, a pastor or the pastors or elders. He included them, of course, but he began this letter, we are writing to the church in Thessalonica. We're writing this to the whole church. And so we, we all have a responsibility to care for each other, uh, to encourage and build up each other. And so we really come back to the same application that we had at the end of chapter 4. We're supposed to use these things that we talked about this morning, and we're supposed to practice and pray for how we can incorporate these things in our conversations with each other in a way that greatly encourages and builds up each other. And I, th I, think, it, I think it's something that takes the help of the Holy Spirit to do. You know, we can, we can talk about a lot of subjects very easily, can't we? And then we somehow just can't seem to open our mouths when talking about, talking with one another about the glories of our salvation and the glorious things to come. And so I think we need to ask God to open our mouths, to equip us and fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we can speak to one another uh, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but also speak to one another in just these glorious truths about the glorious future that God has for us. So let's do that. Let's ask God to uh, equip us and, and open, our, open our mouths to be able to put this in our conversations with, with one another and so strengthen uh, the body of Christ. Amen? All right, let's, uh, let's pray. Let's stand and pray. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. We'll sit, back, we'll sit back down, but just let's take a break and stand up and pray as we pray.